You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tadanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media. A scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled upon it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. 
Great to be with you this morning. My name's Andy. Um, a great pleasure to open the word. Thank you to Guy and the team for the invitation uh, to preach this morning. Um, I just want to talk a little bit, I want a bit on honesty moment. Um, I, I love the, the drive to Bunnings on a Saturday morning. And that's not the honesty bit, but I, I love the whole ritual of it, the optimism. I love the uh, taking on tools I don't know how to use with the, the hope that YouTube will... Give me those skills. I just love the, at the beginning of the day when the sausage sizzle is fresh and there are hours ahead, the optimism that you have about what you can achieve in that one day. My confession is by the end of the day, it's not always the case that that task is completely 100% wrapped up and done. Uh, and I wonder if we can just have a real moment here for a second, just to have a con- public confession. Who here has maybe one or two unfinished projects around the house? Guy Mason, I've seen your house. <laughs> I know that's true. Yeah, there's a few people here. There's a few spouses lifting their spouse's hand up here. Do you know, on average, I'm not alone, on average, uh, we have nine unfinished projects around our house, things that we're in the middle of fixing. On average, nine unfinished projects... And 90% of us think that our house has more work to be done. All right, we, we're, I'm not alone in this. There's a lot of unfinished DIY going around, and that's how Bunnings makes its money, with the promise of finishing. And today, in fact, there's another DIY unfinished project which we're looking at. In fact, this is not just a Bunnings thing. It's not just our culture thing. This goes back to uh, well BC in today's passage. So I'm pleased to be able to open it up this morning. I'm, gra- I'm grateful that uh, we're looking at this passage because I think there's a lot for us to learn, not about DIY, but about our building of the kingdom and our work together. So um, it's a mammoth project, which is incomplete in Jerusalem. It's the temple of God, which has left incomplete. Uh, For those of you who like dates, in 536 BC, they started building the temple. It's now 536. It's now 520. That's a good 16 years later. And you'd expect that they've well and truly wrapped this project up, moved on to the next thing. But in fact, 16 years later, we're still waiting for the temple to be completed. What was it that caused this delay? Well, actually, we heard about that last week, didn't we? When Peter Adam came and preached to us, he opened the word and he talked about the three things that were slowing them down throughout this period. The seduction of the world, the seduction of false or compromised worship, the suffering that they were experiencing the persecution from people, from their enemies who did not want to see this temple and this city rebuilt. And the slander, the slander, the lies being told about God's people, which slowed them down, the seduction, the suffering, the slander. As a result of this, this seduction, this suffering, this slander, this temple has stood there incomplete, barely the foundations laid for 16 years. And God's people are discouraged. God's people are discouraged. They started with great enthusiasm, but now like my DIY projects, it's the end of Saturday and we're no closer to completion than we were at the start. And at this point, God sends in the prophets. Let's uh, get the passage out. Chapter five, verse one, enter the prophets. They're going to sort them out. Now the prophets Haggai And Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. 
Now, we think of prophets as people who predict the future, and sometimes prophets do that, but that's not their main job. Their main job is to give God's opinion on what's going on in the world. We read a lot of opinions. Uh, There's opinions in the newspaper, giving opinions, thoughts about what's going on in the world. There are lots of opinions on Twitter. I have a Twitter account, and I share my opinions with about four followers. But if you want God's opinion on what's going on, you need to look to a prophet. A A prophet is a spokesperson for God. Not just predicting the future, though they sometimes do that, but giving God's opinion about what's going on. And so he sends in the prophets, and they give their opinion. Now, not all um, of the prophets that God sent throughout the history of God's people got a book deal. We don't always get to read what they said. Sometimes it was just verbal. But these two particular prophets did get a book deal. They published their prophecies, and so we can read them. And, you know, this text in Ezra sort of skims over some of the details. It makes it sound like, well, the prophets turned up and encouraged the people, and then they got it built. Can I say, the message was a bit more spicy than that. When you look up, say, Haggai, here's what Haggai had to say to these people who'd left the temple half-built, not even half-built, less than a quarter-built for 16 years. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is from Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In other words, let's, let's not rush into anything. Right, it's been 16 years, but you know, we want to get this right. It's not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Wait until the time is right. Well, this is God's opinion on that through the prophet Haggai. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? In other words, oh, I see, it's not quite ready for the rebuild of the temple, but for some reason, your houses are looking pretty complete. All right? The house of the Lord's incomplete, but your houses, somehow, you're able to get that done. Interesting, says the Lord. Interesting. You're busy building your own house. Meanwhile, this temple of the Lord is barely out of the ground and has been for 16 years. Now, in fairness, we have seen that there's been some opposition to the temple. There's been lots of uncertainties and suffering slander in the last little while. They are a small and powerless community, subject to the whims of those around them. But their lack of attention to the temple, says Haggai, reveals their lack of priorities. Because when you're limited, when you're small, when you can't do everything, what you do do shows your priorities, doesn't it? Now, we're all limited, There's all limits. We all have limits to what we can achieve. You and I have limited money, limited time, limited energy, limited focus. And so what we do achieve often reveals our priorities. And that's the thing. They've put all this energy into building their houses. Their VJ-paneled houses are complete. But the house of the Lord is not. And I found this a little bit uh, personal this week. Uh, it's been budget week in the Judd household, which is when we, um, we don't budget ahead. We go back and work out where our money has gone and um, try to work out why there's none of it left and ask questions like, is it, is it too soon to be charging Chloe rent for her room? Um, she's three. I think we'll give her another year. Anyway, budgeting is a spiritual experience for this precise reason. You might think of budgeting as a financial experience, and it is. But it's also a spiritual experience. 
Because when you have limited money, and everyone has limited money, where you do spend your money reveals your priorities, doesn't it? Where you spend your money reveals what's important. Now, I'm happy to share in a moment of honesty, Steph and I go over budget on almost every item except one in our budget. And you know what that one is? Our giving somehow never goes over budget. Isn't that funny? Everything else. Our eating out budget, our pocket money budget, childcare budget certainly goes over budget. But somehow, I get to the end of the month and we haven't given away as much as we thought we would at the start. That's why budgeting is a spiritual experience, because our limits focus on our priorities and our priorities reveal what's important to us. And it doesn't happen by accident. You don't become more godly by accident. Same thing. It's funny, you know, when we moved houses, changed banks, that sort of thing, our Netflix account suddenly gets the new credit card details, but World Vision doesn't. I don't know what's with that. We set up the internet, first thing we do. But have we made sure that we're giving the amount that we've decided to the church, etc., to missionaries overseas, to aid and development to the poor in Melbourne. And the other parallel is that I found it's always very easy, very easy to ask, is it really the right time? You know, when I was a, when I was a student, you know, living off two-minute noodles, is it really the right time for me to start giving? Maybe I'll wait till I have a job. Then when I've got a job, well, you know, I'm just getting started in my career and I'm saving for a deposit. Maybe it's not yet the right time to be giving. That'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Or maybe, maybe once, once the kids are a bit old and we're not paying childcare, maybe that's the right time to start giving. Maybe when the mortgage is paid off, when I'm 140, <laughs> that's the right time to start giving. I'll just put it all in my will. How about that? You see how easy it is when we're limited in time, in money, in energy, what we do spend our time, our energy, our money on reveals our priorities. And priorities don't set themselves in a godly direction by accident. It requires a Haggai moment. And so I've had my Haggai moment this week. The returned Judean exiles had a real Haggai moment when Haggai appeared and told them, look, what are your priorities? It's 520 BC. They didn't say it's 520 BC, obviously. They didn't know that. Um, but they said, hey, it's been 16 years since, since you, you started this project. Your houses are complete, but somehow the temple is not. And on that rebuke, that spicily worded rebuke from Haggai, they got busy. The leadership stepped up under this Haggai moment. Jumping back to Ezra chapter 5 in verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of the Lord were with them, supporting them, very aggressively supporting them. And they get it done. But it's worth asking at this moment, because it's sort of taken for granted in this passage, why is it so important that they rebuild the temple? Why is that such a big deal? Why is that the most important thing for them to be doing at this point? And what is a house of the Lord? Right, we've seen this passage a number of times, the house of the Lord. Well, here's, here's the deal. A temple, the temple in Jerusalem, is literally called the house of the Lord in the Old Testament. The house of the Lord is the temple. And it is sort of what it says. It's the house 
of the Lord God, Yahweh. And you might be wondering, why does he need a house? Doesn't he, isn't he everywhere? Right? Isn't he everywhere? Does he really need uh, a house? And the answer is, well, no, he doesn't really. He doesn't need a house built by human hands. And he is everywhere. But the thing is, we need a temple to meet with him. He chooses, even though he is infinite and everywhere, he chooses to take up residence in this place so that he can have relationship with us. So that he can have a, we can have a point of relationship with him. And you might be thinking, well, can't they just do that anywhere? Can't they do it while they're on the train? Or can't they just do it in their kitchen? Or can't they do it anywhere they want? Well, no, actually, no. That's the one thing the Old Testament teaches us very clearly. No. You cannot just approach God anyhow, anywhere you like. We approach God on his terms in the way that he makes possible. And in Old Testament times, that was the temple. Nowhere else. We approach God on his terms in his place that he has chosen to make himself available to us. And the reason is because God is holy and we are very much not holy. Holy is something about God that just is. He's just perfect. He's pure. He's bright. He's glorious. There's nothing wrong in him. There's nothing impure in him. There's nothing unjust in him. We, however, are hopeless sinners. We are not pure by default. We are not good by default. We all do things we're not proud of. And for us to like stroll as sinners, to stroll into the presence of a holy God is like, I don't know, strolling on the surface of the sun. Not good for your life expectancy. For an impure, unholy person like me to just waltz into the presence of a holy God, there needs to be something there. Something needs to happen to make that possible, or I'll just be evaporated in a moment. The Old Testament is full of stories of people who thought they could stroll into the presence of God, even priests who thought they could just do it their own way, approach God casually, as if their sin doesn't matter to him, as if their injustice doesn't matter to him. And without fail, they are consumed in a moment. It's like strolling on the surface of a sun. You don't just waltz into the presence of God. He has to make it possible for us to have relationship with him because we are not holy by default. And so the temple is about clearing a holy space, a holy time, a holy space where we and God can come into relationship for our own protection more than anything. Because if we don't have that space that holy sphere around the temple with the proper personal protective equipment and procedures, bad things happen to us. So it's his gift, really, the temple, making it possible for us to have a relationship with him. If we're going to have anything to do with God, we have to engage with him on his terms. And that's the temple. A holy God, unholy people brought together in this impossible bubble whereby God's grace, we can have relationship. So you can't actually make sacrifices wherever you want. That's forbidden. You can't offer sacrifices in any way that you like. Only God's way 
with the procedures set out in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses. True worship, friends, and this is so important for us to grasp, true worship is always on God's terms. It's always on God's terms, not our own. Anything else is false religion, and false religion does not get you very far. False religion leads to destruction. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, where is this temple and why aren't we there? <laughs> All right? As Christians, where does this leave us? Well, we no longer approach God at the temple, which is good because it's been destroyed. All right? But we do approach God still, and this is the principle he wants us to learn from the Old Testament. We still approach God on his terms through the means, the place, the sphere that he alone makes possible. And he does that not in a building, not in a particular place on earth, but first and foremost through his son, Jesus. We don't have a temple. We do have a living temple, Jesus. The way that God has provided for us to approach him, the only way, the only truth, the only life through him is the only way we can approach God. And so I want to say to, to, to people who are here or uh, people who are tuning in um, online, it's wonderful that you're, you're here, particularly if you are exploring faith. Okay, maybe you have an inkling that there is a creator. Maybe you have an inkling. I, I, I know there's many people who have an inkling that they are made for a purpose, that there is a reason why we're here. We're not just sort of like atoms plus chance. We are that, but we are so much more than atoms. We have a sense, an intrinsic sense, an intuition that there is a reason why we are alive and that there is someone who has made us. And if you have that intuition, I'm so glad that you're exploring that because I think it's real. It is real. And as you explore that, I want to encourage you to make your way through Jesus because he is the only way that we can approach that God the true God, the creator God, the one who gives purpose and meaning, the reason why there is such a thing as justice and injustice in the world, the reason why there is beauty, beauty, truth, rightness, goodness, all those things are a sign that there is a God who made you, who wants to have a relationship to you, with you. But we need to approach that God on his terms because we are not those things. We are not holy and he is. So we need to approach him through Jesus. And so that, if that is you, I, I commend you for exploring faith, for coming here. Keep Commit to coming here, please. Each Sunday to sit under the word with other people who are on about exploring faith. Listen to the word preached each week and, and the songs which teach our hearts and the prayers and, and our gathering together. Commit to that each week. And, and, and don't just do that. Be part of a small group a gospel community where people are with you walking along that path to knowing Jesus more because he is the only way we can approach the true God. And maybe you have questions. I think it's normal to have questions. Maybe commit to doing an alpha course. You connect with us at the welcome desk down the front. We'd love to connect you into an alpha course where you can ask questions in a safe and friendly place. Explore with others. Whatever it is that you need to do to make your next step, I just encourage you to do that today. Commit to growing in your knowledge and your understanding of Jesus because he is the only place you can come 
Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Come to Jesus and take that step. And you can start by talking to God. I think it's always a good idea to pray to God. God, I think you're there. Please help me know Jesus better. So you can imagine, back to Ezra, you can imagine the temple, that one place they can approach God then, you can imagine what it would have been like to find out that that temple had been destroyed. That's the only way in the whole world that they can approach God and it's been destroyed. God's people had refused to keep their side of the covenant, the deal, the promise between them and God. He would be their God, they would be their people. He would give them the land and and the law and they would obey and they would enjoy blessings as God's people in that land. But they disobeyed. They broke their side of the covenant and the whole thing blew apart. God warned them, they didn't listen, and so God actually left the temple. They didn't keep it a holy place and so he had to leave. And at that point, the Babylonians come in, it's no longer protected, God is gone, it's just a building now. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the city. This all happened in 587, 586 BC. And it was devastating for people who were genuinely on about God, who genuinely wanted to continue that relationship with God. You can imagine finding out that you cannot worship God anymore. You cannot approach God truly and rightly anymore. It's gone. The end of the road. The city's reduced to rubble. A bunch of them are taken off to exile in Babylon. Thankfully, though, God is not done with this people at that point. God is merciful and gracious. And so if you remember back to the start of this series in Ezra, we we hear that God actually used the new king of Persia, Cyrus, to allow some of those exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The temple where they could still approach God. Once again, they could approach God truly and rightly. And that's why they returned home. That's why, I mean, they, most of them had grown up in exile. They didn't know anything about Judea. But they knew that they needed a temple. The world needed a temple where they could worship God rightly. And so they came home, they left everything, came back to their ancestral lands and, and laid the foundation in 536 BC. But then they left it there, incomplete. You can see what a disconnect that is. You had one job, one reason why the king has allowed you to return, one last chance, last opportunity for everyone to be able to approach God again on his terms and you're just busy? Do you really believe that this is the hope of the world, the only way we can approach God? Because by leaving it incomplete for 16 years, it doesn't look like it's much of a priority. And so they free focus the preaching of the word, the prophets, they refocus, they get going. And a local official called Zerubbabel and a high priest called Joshua get the temple back again. But they then run into some opposition, a roadblock. And so um, this next phase is not so much about the seduction and the slander that we saw last week. This is all about paperwork. So if you've been waiting, if you're like a bureaucratically minded person, you've been waiting for the week on paperwork, building permits. Mm. This is your week. Because that's the, uh, the roadblock they run into. Chapter 5, verse 3. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shiatha Bozenai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. 
Who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? So the governors turn up in the high-vis vests with their clipboards out and going, do you have a permit for this temple? Because the government's actually changed. The governor's changed since they started this project 16 years ago. So they, no one knows where their permits have gone. And so this starts a phase in biblical history I'm going to call um, kind of Indiana Jones and the Lost Building Permit. All right, they're going to make it into a Hollywood, Hollywood movie soon, I'm very sure. There's going to be riveting stuff. All right, they say, look, we do have a permit, promise. I just don't have it on me. Um, but if you look back in the government archives, you'll find it there. And so, remarkably, they, um, they get away with it. I mean, it's true, they do have a permit, but it's remarkable that they're able to continue at this point. Three miraculous interventions at this point. Firstly, miraculous that the government allows them to continue building even though they haven't yet found the permit. If you've had any dealings with local council, you know that this is a divine miracle, right? The bureaucrats are like, okay, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt, you keep building your temple, and we'll go back to Ekbatana and check. Remarkable. But the eye of their God, verse 5, was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer should be returned by letter concerning it. So miraculous. There's no delay while they go look. Second, what are the odds in the ancient world of being able to find this little piece of paper, this document? Well, again, God's behind it, isn't he? Providence is behind them. Because we find out in chapter 6, verse 2, and in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written. A record in the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundation be reinstated. Remarkable. They found it, the scroll. The building permit has not been lost to history. And the third miracle is what Darius then orders, having found this paperwork. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Sheth Bazenai, and your associates and the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. In other words, don't interfere with them. But there's more. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. But that's not all. Verse 8, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. Here's, here's the important bit. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. In other words, they get to rebuild the house and the Persians are going to pay for it. Amazing. They've just gone from the local councils here to shut down the work site to actually, we're going to make donations to the temple. Here, have some more money. Do you see God's providence behind this project? God is with them, and he wants this temple to be rebuilt. Now, you might think that this is ludicrous, as if the Persians would do this. But funnily enough, in 1879, archaeologists discovered a, a document called the Cyrus Cylinder, which kind of corroborates that this was the general policy of the empire in these days, right? They figured the more temples of our occupied people we have on our side, the more they'll be praying for us to their gods, the better things will go for us. So this actually checks out historically. But behind the historical scenes, God is the one really driving it along. 
moving through this empire. So you must imagine, right, the people who were opposed to the building last week, who were trying to stop them, must just be absolutely furious. Not only have they failed to stop the rebuilding, but actually the Persians are going to help them pay for it. Amazing. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, um, Shathar, Bazenai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by a decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king, which works out at 12th of March, 515 BC. The temple is rebuilt. And you know what you do with a new temple? You power it up. So they get all that you can read about in chapter six. They get all the sacrifices and there's like 700 animals and they, they use the blood which God has given them to clear this holy space. And it's all a wonderful celebration. The priests in their divisions, the Levites come. And this is a reminder of the very first time that the temple is dedicated to the Lord back in the time of Solomon. There is a difference though, and it's a bit of a sad moment in the story. You might think 700 animals is quite a lot, and it is a lot. But back in the day, it was actually so many animals. In Solomon's day, it was so many animals that couldn't be counted were sacrificed. What's the reason for the change in numbers? Why uncountable animals, but now like you know, a good number of animals? Well, it's because 10 of the 12 tribes are missing. They're still in exile. They never came back, actually. 10 of the 12 tribes are still in exile. This small ragtag team of people have returned to rebuild the temple. It's a start, but it's not the glorious future where all of Israel's back and worshipping and the whole world is drawn to worship. It's not that yet. There's some differences this time. It's not the restoration that we're hoping for. So where do we see that? Where do we see the whole restoration of the temple and everything back the way it was intended to be? Well, ultimately in Jesus, actually. In Jesus, he's the one to whom all the peoples of the world, not just the 12 tribes of Israel, but all the people of the world will come to Jesus and worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building, God's house, he might have said. By the grace of God, by, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The new temple that Jesus brings about is founded on Jesus himself. But you know what? We're part of it too. Read on, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Friends, we are the completion of this story. God always keeps his promises in the end. If we haven't seen it yet, it's not the end yet. And here in the building of God's temple, the church, we see the final restoration of worship. Where do, you want to, where do you go to meet God now? Where do you go in order to engage with God through Jesus? Well, you come to the church, the people of God, who are being built together into God's temple. 
Where on earth do you go to meet Jesus now? You go to the church. I don't mean like the stained glass windows and sandstone, the brick and mortar, the building. I mean you. Us gathered here physically in this room, but also online and also all over the world. Everyone who's gathered together around Jesus, who's been called together by his voice, who is following him. We are the temple of God. And it brings together not just people from two tribes of Israel, not just people from 12 tribes of Israel, people from all over the world have been brought together in the name of Jesus. And God is present in our midst. God's temple is not a building anymore. It's this people we see gathered around his son. So why do people come to church? Is it because the music's great or we've got the biggest screen or the comfiest seats in the Southern Hemisphere? Maybe. No! <laughs> we come here to meet with God and to take our part in the building of his church. To take our part in the building of his church. That's what temple building means now. Building up the body of Christ. Encouraging each other, serving, bringing people in, discipling them, encouraging one another with the word of God. So I want to ask you seriously, we're in the middle of a building project, the most significant building project since Ezra and his mates were working in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It's the building project of the temple of God, his people. So what do you got? What are your skills? What are your gifts? He's made us all different. And notice when they were building the temple, it wasn't just like one type of person required. They needed everybody to play their part. Not just one skill set, but everyone to give of their time, of their money, of their talents to see this rebuilding. I want to ask you seriously, what are your gifts? How has God uniquely made you? And where does that unique set of gifts and passions and talents, where does that meet the needs of the world? Maybe you already know it, but maybe you're still trying to discern that. Can I encourage you today to talk to someone? To talk to someone about how you can serve God in the building of his church. Some of you, I know, have gifts of teaching and leadership and discipling other Christians and opening the word. You're like Bible people. You love digging in. And maybe you see the potential here for new gospel communities. Maybe even whole new churches in this city or beyond. Maybe you should prayerfully consider, talk to your leaders about doing an internship here at church to test the waters of this kind of Bible teaching ministry. Or, or maybe take a course to strengthen your leadership. Or maybe uh, go to Bible college and get better at handling the word. I hear Ridley College is quite good. <laughs> that's a joke because I work there. I'd love to talk to you about that if that's your gift set. Or you think it might be. But other people, your gift's not teaching, not leadership, but your gifts are just as essential. Maybe you have a heart for those who don't yet know Jesus and you just love going out there into the world and bringing people in, hearing their story, hearing what God is doing already in their life and pointing them to Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're great at making people feel loved through hospitality, through your generosity. Maybe you can open your home each week to a gospel community. Or maybe you can serve at many rooms to, to feed the, the most vulnerable in our city. Maybe you have the spiritual gift of spreadsheets. Bless you, I don't. Maybe it's like corporate governance is your thing. Finance. Maybe it's pouring into kids. 
encouraging them and listening to them and pointing them to Jesus. Or maybe it's sending encouraging notes to people. Bless you for that. Maybe you have the most righteous guitar tone in the Southern Hemisphere, delicately shaped and molded. And it's time for you to think about serving in the music. I don't know what it is. I know that there are massive needs all over our church, our church here and the church more broadly. I know there's massive spaces in our city kids ministry. We have more kids than... I know that we have massive needs in in like camera ministries. Bless you, Curtis, great to have you. In our vision team, they're all working really hard. We need more people. I'm sure Emily, who leads our host team on Sunday, could attest that we need more people serving to welcome people, to make sure they feel loved when they walk into church. And I know there's spaces on our um, logistics team. Uh, Stefan, our son, Josh, he's five. He's joined the team. He calls it the gymnastics team. doesn't require any <laughs> gymnastics, but it does require moving things in and setting up our space for church. Whatever your gifts are, there is a part. I can guarantee you there is a part for you to play in the building of his temple, in the building of his church. So I want to pray now as the band gets up that we would be open to serving where we're needed, that we'd be humble and that we'd hear the call to rebuild the temple of God. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, thank you so much that we see in your word here your commitment to your temple, your commitment to having a relationship with us. We pray that as we take our part in the building of your church, we would be hearing what you have called us to do. We would be humble enough to hear other people speak into our gifts and we would take up our part in the building of your church. Thank you that you are here in our midst. Thank you that we can meet Jesus here. And I pray that you would, through us, bless the world. And it's for the good of this church and for your glory that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.